everyone and welcome back to On Track, Off Course, the Racing Welfare podcast. I'm Lauren Braithwaite, here again with my colleague Tina Scargill. This is the last episode in this series of the podcast and this week we are focusing on cancer. Not something that we typically think about as a racing issue but we know that one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetime which makes it an issue that we're all going to have to face at some point and racing welfare can offer a really wide breadth of support with it can't they Tina? Yeah they really can and Simone Sear joins us on this episode to talk about what racing welfare can do for people and the amount of support out there I always say it every episode but the amount of support that they can offer from financial support to mental health support Mm. through to helping with respite so funding for a holiday you know help with the isolation that's caused with cancer and the treatment that you go through it's incredible and we really wanted to to highlight that so that people know that they can come forward for support for those people who are living with cancer and also those who are supporting people through cancer yeah and our main guest today is ed chamberlain and you know that that thing about how difficult it is for those that are supporting you through a cancer diagnosis and treatment and whatever that journey may be it's really tough and um it was a really emotional conversation with Ed really wasn't it yeah. yeah and actually I'd never I knew that he'd been through it but I didn't realize just what a harrowing time he'd had and yeah. he's such an excellent broadcaster and so slick and it was amazing to see how much it's affected him mm. and, and how generous he was with his story. Yeah, it was it was really moving. And we also speak to Chrissy Sykes, who's a racing secretary at Ruth Carr Racing, and she really came on to try and highlight how important it is for men in particular not to feel embarrassed about reaching out for support after her husband delayed getting um having his symptoms investigated for nearly two years and he's been very lucky to come out the other side of that but um it was great to hear from her too yeah I mean she she wanted to come on and highlight that it's so important to go to the doctor and and doctors have seen everything and actually that resonated with me because I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer and because he was a medic he diagnosed himself the day that he went jaundice which is a big symptom of pancreatic cancer and went to the doctor said straight away and said I'm in trouble here and mm. I think that actually gave him four and a half years extra of life and I think if he hadn't have gone that quickly to the doctor I don't think we would have okay. had him for that long mm-hmm. m- much longer and those are precious years and uh, I said to Richard Farquhar one of our trustees that I just hope that one day there's a less brutal and debilitating method to treat cancer because it's just so devastating and and actually talking of Richard Farquhar he's doing another amazing walk the courses from from Newmarket to Cheltenham in October so look out for that as well because he's done amazing things. Yeah good on him. Let's get going with Ed. I'm thrilled to say we're joined now by ITV Racing presenter Ed Chamberlain. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We sort of caught you in a Derby Royal Ascot sandwich, so you're probably pretty busy at the moment. That's perfect timing, Lauren, to be honest. Thank you, (laughs) Tina, for having me 
as well. Yeah, it's lovely to be sort of have the derby done, and it was a, a fantastic couple of days. And and now to have Royal Ascot quickly looming on the horizon, with a beautiful looking weather forecast, by the way, is 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 really exciting. Actually, I, I just love this time of year where you you bounce from Chester to the Dante meeting to classics, and then the five days next week are, are absolute monsters. If I'm honest. And Ed, this must be a good time of year for you, Royal Ascot, the Derby, and you don't have Southampton to ruin the week for you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> since Christmas, Tina, honestly, it was miserable, wasn't it? Being a Southampton fan, <laughs> it was uh, relegation form and, and worse than that. And you've joined us today to talk about your experience of living with cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about the diagnosis and what happened? And you were quite young at the time, mid-30s. It started for me when would have been in 2009 I was I was suffering some real stomach pain I couldn't work out what it was and I would go to my GP who I who I attach no blame to whatsoever but I'd say my stomach is really really painful I can't eat and they basically diagnosed me with you know pain that I needed ready for and indigestion and all sorts of things and, and sent me away and it just got worse and worse and I was sort of treating myself I remember it so well I would take Nurofen and I know that Nurofen lasts about three hours 58 minutes because then I'd I'd been excruciating pain and have to take more Nurofen and then I'd just about be okay and being at work and I was a a sports newsreader at Sky in those days and I used to present a show called Midweek Soccer Specials uh, on a Tuesday and Wednesday evening and and, and it was just a became just getting through it, getting home. And then it started affecting my sleep and back I'd go to the GP again and say it was getting worse. And I, and I was due to have, um, what is it called when they put a camera down your throat into your stomach and then endoscopy. Yeah, an endoscopy. Um, Cause they, they thought I had stomach ulcers. When after one Tuesday night show, I got home and I literally collapsed. Ambulance called into hospital. They thought initially I had pneumonia then it got more serious and they thought I had lymphoma, which for anyone who doesn't know is cancer of the blood. And it was then that we, we, we suddenly realized it, it was a lot more serious than that. And there began a, a little, a pretty traumatic period. What was that like getting that diagnosis after all that time? Lauren, I was so ill at the time. I, I, I was really struggling. I'd had Christmas and I think my parents realized something was badly amiss when I don't eat Christmas lunch something is is (laughs) is very much awry I I was in so much pain that I just wanted something to take it away and the initial diagnosis I'm not going to lie was harrowing particularly harrowing for my wife and my family because they ended up taking a biopsy from me which again we'll come back to later because that's where things went horribly wrong so I had to go through my back and we went into Winchester Hospital one day to meet the lovely doctor. And she was, she was a very, very nice person. And we went in, my wife and I, and she literally, as we walked into her office, it got too much for her. She was crying. And she said, because um, we didn't know at the time, as I said, we, we thought it might be lymphoma. She said, you've got a tumor in your stomach. And my immediate reaction was, oh my goodness, I've got months. Um, I, w- I was surprisingly calm, I think, because <laughs> I, w- I wasn't very yeah. well, I think, which is largely why. For my poor wife froze completely and had to be taken away, as you can imagine. I then had to go all under, undergo all sorts of tests. But over the next couple of days, um, 
we then learned more about the tumor pretty quickly. And I went to see my oncologist who I then became pretty close to a chap called Ben Mead. And I remember his first words to me were, I think I can save you, which at the time was quite reassuring. So I'd seen the doctor on a Wednesday. I saw him on a Friday and I was in hospital on a Sunday. Uh, and all that time I was feeling rotten. Absolutely, I couldn't get off the sofa. So I was, it was almost a relief to, to, to be treated. And I, one thing I can remember clearly, I didn't know what chemotherapy was. I genuinely did not know what chemotherapy was. And on that first Sunday, I went into Southampton and as to has become a regular experience, they were oversubscribed for beds. You had to wait around to try and get a bed in a ward. And that, that first Sunday night, I was in my own room and I was on a drip for between 10 and 11 hours. I had very, very intense chemotherapy, which would be 11 hours of maybe four different bags with fluid in between. And one of those bags would always be the, what I would call the lethal one. You knew which one it was. It was covered red so it couldn't see daylight. And I knew that was a bad one coming. You could be preemptive. You could, you could ask for your anti-sickness tablets and so on. But that first morning, a Monday morning, for the first time in probably three or four months, I was pain-free in my stomach. It had, it had just made that little bit of difference. The tumor, which was the size probably bigger than an avocado in my stomach, had shrunk just enough to take the pressure off whatever it was pressing against. Uh, the one thing I was was very strong mentally then because I knew the poison chemotherapy and whatever, whatever you want to call it was, was, was working. Um, and yeah, e each time I was in hospital for three nights, um, it was some experience for someone who didn't really understand what it was all about. And what was the ongoing treatment that you had? Was that a scan every few months? I had three sets of intense chemotherapy treatment in hospital. Um, with a three-week gap between. And then once a week, if I was strong enough, um, I could drive myself back to Southampton Hospital and, and I'd have another session, just an afternoon session sitting in an armchair, not in a, a ward or anything like that. But the difficulty was, and I, I could cope with it fine to start with because I was so ill, I just wanted to be treated. But then it would absolutely wipe you out. And I didn't want to go home because I had a daughter and my wife was pregnant, do you believe, at the time, just cool. to add to the mix. Um, and I'd then recover, I'd be strong enough normally to sort of walk the dog sort of strength. And then you go back into hospital and be hit again. Um, but again, where I was strong mentally is that everything when you're going through a journey like that is, is, is dictated by your blood markers. Whilst my markers when I first started were quite elevated. But I remember the second cycle, if you like, Tina, when we're talking about those cycles. So three weeks after the first one, when I went back in. I got my marker measurements, which had come down. And that was the biggest moment for me because my cancer wasn't spreading. And when I knew that it wasn't spreading, my markers were coming down. That's when I was starting to beat it. And that's what gave me the biggest psychological boost possible. And that was it. That was a huge moment for me. What, what I was finding hard, it's also, you're bringing it all back to me now. What I was finding hard at the time, and I think anyone who's gone through it will understand is, is, is when you lose all your hair. And I lost mine very quickly because my treatment was so vicious, if you like. A lot of chemotherapy is much weaker. My mum, soon after my journey, had breast cancer and hers was much milder, but it, the biggest part of her journey was, was trying to keep her hair and wearing an ice cap. And I was hopefully quite, quite useful in that because I lost mine so quickly. And it was devastating, actually. My one bit of advice is this preempt, preempt all these things. Preempt when you think you're going to be... Um, 
feel bad, take your anti-sickness tablets, but with your hair, preempt what's going to happen. And I remember Steve Cottrell, who was a football manager at the time, came into Southampton Hospital and I had a huge crowd around my bed and he shaved my head. He shaved my head so I didn't have to endure that moment when your hair is all over your pillow. And it was a really good move. I, I looked absolutely hideous, um, <laughs> but, it, but it was a really good idea. And, it, and it's just the hardest thing. I was lucky because in winter I could go everywhere with a woolly hat. Um, it, it, looking back at it, it was probably the, the hardest thing for me was, was, was dealing with that and people looking at you strangely. And yeah. you, you, just, you, just, you just crave being normal, if that makes any sense. Speak about your, your mental strength. Where do you think that? Did you know you were that strong? Where did that come from? Is that sort of a sports background? Is it just, do you think it's something that was just born and bred into you? I wouldn't say I was particularly mentally strong before that. I remember when I first got the big football job at Sky, I really struggled with it mentally because I was going into a little bit of a cauldron because um, Andy Gray had been sacked and Richard Keyes had resigned. And I was thrown into it out of the blue and I found it really tough dealing with the negativity in the in the media the social media um I toughened up pretty quickly with that but I, I think I surprised myself with with how strong I was but I, I knew I had to be I think anyone going through it hopefully will understand what I mean is when when you're in control it's easier for you I knew exactly what I had to do when I knew exactly how to counter um the sickness, which is a big part of the chemotherapy I had, I knew exactly how to deal with that. I knew when to take my anti-sickness tablets. I'd set myself targets. Every morning, my target, anyone who knows Southampton Hospital will know there's a WH Smith's on the ground floor. My target was to be well enough to get my racing post, get back to bed, and then I'd be happy because <laughs> I could, I could mm. sit up and read it. And I'd feel like I'd achieved something in the morning when I'd done that. That was my first hurdle to overcome, if you like. And... I was quickly aware that it was much harder throughout on the people around me, much harder for my wife who, who would try and sympathize with you, but it's very hard to know what I was thinking or what I was going through. My poor parents, my two sisters were amazing throughout, but all the time I felt in control of what I was doing. I knew exactly when my next treatment was. I knew pretty quickly how that affected me. I knew how to counter that. And I was the one talking to my oncologist all the time. And he was saying to me, this is going to happen next. This is what we're going to do next. It'll be shrinking. It'll be shrinking. And it, everything was building to this crux moment where they knew they'd shrink the tumor. And then it was a question of whether they could just leave it to disperse or whether I'd need to have it out. And I had that date in my mind from a very early stage. And, 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 and I wanted to beat this thing so badly, particularly with a, a baby who I knew was going to be a boy at the time. Um, I think that sort of all added to my determination, Lauren, but the emotion hitting me is thinking about your poor wife pregnant and with a young child like what did she how did she cope with that what support did she have to get through that she was incredible absolutely incredible but it we're talking 10 years later I think it still affects her now I think she'd be honest you know when I get a cold or mm. anything you know but you automatically think the worst I uh, I, 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 it's changed me, but in a totally different way. It's changed me as a person into I'm more relaxed now. I'm more prepared to take a risk. I, I, I changed jobs in ridiculous fashion. You know, giving up Premier League football to go to horse racing is insane. I mean, no one else would do it, but I did it because I thought, crikey, you know, you only live once. How lucky am I to be here? I might as well just go for it. Um, for her, it's very different. And a lot of this chemotherapy, particularly that, that session I talked about in the week, I could have had at home. But because my health insurance hadn't worked, I couldn't do anything privately. 
So every time I had to get down to the hospital and often I wasn't strong enough to do it myself. So a heavily pregnant lady had to take me to hospital and so on. And, and I think it was really, really hard on her, really, really hard. And likewise, you know, my poor mum, they were the ones who had to pick up the pieces because I didn't want to go home and let my little daughter Polly see me in that state after I'd had those three nights in hospital. So I'd, I'd always go to my parents' house and just, I was in isolation for, for sometimes a week, sometimes less than that, till I was strong enough to, to get up and walk. Um, so I think it was really hard on those guys, really hard. And do you have any fear now, Ed, of it returning? Now, not so. I don't, I don't actually genuinely think like that. I have, I have a checkup every year where the oncologist feels around my stomach and then my heart is in my mouth because you don't want him to suddenly say, you know, when he starts pressing on the area and if he prolongs it, all sorts of thoughts go through your mind. And after that, I have to have blood tests. It's, it's very reassuring. It's a bit like having an MOT. I, I, I say to him, I don't want this to stop. It used to be three months and then it was six months. And I got to a year, which is great. It's like a triumph. They're only checking me every year, but I wouldn't want to change that. I like being checked every year and I like them doing my blood tests. But, but when I have my bloods checked, they say to you, we'll call you if there's anything untoward. So you can imagine probably for the next week, 10 days, whenever the phone rings, you think, please don't be the hospital, please don't be the hospital. And whenever I get a letter stamped Southampton General, your heart just absolutely sinks and you open it with trepidation. But apart from that, do I worry every day? No, I don't. I really don't. But at the time when I was told I had a tumour, it was then that I thought three months and six months just flashed through my mind. But I was also so ill, Tina, at the time. I can't tell you just how awful I felt at the time. And when you feel that bad, you're, you're probably not really thinking straight. I just wanted, I just wanted someone to do something to take away the pain, um, which is where the frustration of, of being getting gradually worse. And I'd lost so much weight. I was, I was naturally, I'm about 12 and a half, 13 stone. And, and I got down to nine, nine and a half stone. So I, I looked awful. I was gray. Um, and I just wanted something to happen. So I, I was more numb than worried and panicking at the time mm. um and when you get in hospital this is the strangest thing is that when you see the people around you in the wards i was in you, even though you know it was, it was it was traumatic for me and my family you look around you and you just think oh my goodness me you know i almost i almost felt lucky to have hope you, you, you'd make mm. a friend because as you know i'm a, a talkative person you'd make a friend in the bed next door and we'd be talking often you know lots of southampton fans and and they wouldn't be there the next morning, you know. And down the corridor was the, the children's cancer ward, which is what broke my heart and which is why I got involved with Well Child and which is all well, well documented. But the horror that's around you and the things you have to see and, and you sort of, you, you, it opens your eyes. And a lot of the time, genuinely, I was thinking, I've got hope here. I'm, I'm lucky and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to beat this thing. Did your passion for football and horse racing that... Did that help you in any way, like your Definitely. Love of sport? Definitely, because you need you need distractions so badly. You need you need support. You, you, you don't want sympathy, Lauren. If that makes any sense, you don't want everyone saying, "Oh, poor you." That's the last thing you want. Mm -hmm. And I think people should bear that in mind for anyone they know going through it. They, you just want to be normal. You. The thing I hated most was walking down the street, if I'm honest, or going into a betting shop, which I used to do with a woolly hat on sometimes to watch a race and everyone stares at you. So you've got no eyebrows. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't shave for nine months. 
that was actually an upside really <laughs> um I remember when I the stubble started coming back and my mum saying to me I think you need a shave um but sport was a massive part of it reading watching and a lot of the articles whenever Cheltenham comes around reminds me of my time in hospital because I was in there for so long at times that I got to know the nurses so well and they were such amazing people there was one lady in the intensive care unit who was just the most amazing person I've ever met in my life and I remember talking to her and saying I really want to watch the Champions League final Liverpool were in the Champions League final that year and I said please 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 and she said we've never ever ever allowed anyone to have a television in the IC let alone unit. watch Liverpool uh, yeah let alone watch <laughs> Liverpool that's it for an Everson fan I'm sure you'd have probably watched it as well and I, I spent a lot of time asleep, as you can imagine, particularly then because I couldn't get any food on board. And then I woke up one time and she wheeled in this telly for me. And oh, I remember just breaking down with joy. And then in binoculars, Leah, for the champion hurdle, Sir Anthony McCoy, who you know is the greatest sportsman of all time, he's also one of the nicest blokes in the world, which no one would see. And he was someone who was in touch with me a lot of the time and wanted to raise money for me and all sorts. And he said, I'm going to win the champion hurdle for you. And <laughs> I remember it so well because I, I and then I was well enough to take my drip you're connected to a drip and I went next door to watch binocular hopefully win the champion hurdle and he got beat and my world ended <laughs> it was horrendous and because I knew what it meant to him and I wanted him to win so badly and I remember going back to my <clears throat> my bed in the ward just distraught and then in those days the handicap chase was after the champion hurdle and he won on which alignment and you can imagine how excited I got. And I pulled my arm <laughs> off my drip, which is the biggest no-no in chemotherapy. Um, I'm not surprised that race was intense, wasn't it? It came from miles behind. But Tina, I got in so much trouble. That was the end of my television <laughs> no watching in the, in the war. <laughs> I was so happy because he'd won. But, I, I, uh, you know, alarms going off. You can imagine what was all over the floor. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd done something very naughty, but... In truth. And it's incredible to watch your, so it's a shame this is audio just for that little bit because we've been talking about all this stuff and the thing that's really got a lump in your throat is talking about <laughs> AP and the... What he does for other people that no one knows about. Um, guys in wheelchairs, um, you ask any of them and um, he's just he's just an incredible person. No one knows about it and he does it quietly behind the scenes and he's just... He's just a, a diamond. And you watch back when he rode winner 3000 at Plumpton. And again, I'm in hospital at the time, not really thinking too much about it. And he went on television. I think it was an interview with Alex Hammond. And he said, all the, all the money I've raised today, um, I'd like to go to Ed's fund. <laughs> just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, I was listening to it. I didn't know who was going to do that. Um, and I didn't have a fund. So I think we gave it to Teenage Cancer Trust at the time. And that's just typical of him. And he's an emotional fool as well, I can assure you. But I was so determined to come back. And I, I had this date in my mind, and which all, all perhaps the sort of next part in the journey, because that went totally and utterly pear shaped. about that next part. And breathe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I went into hospital, I think in January, soon after Christmas, the Christmas I told you when I was so ill. And... I had in my mind, having spoken to the oncologist, that I might be back at work for the start of the football season, which was the first week in August. And to do that, I needed to shrink the tumour to such a degree that they didn't need to operate. But even if they operated, there was a chance that it would be quite a simple operation, take away the remains of the tumour and then on you go. 
but they said they wanted to operate, which was a relief for them. For me, I was a bit gutted, but I thought, okay, fine. And then when they went to operate, rewinding the story to when they did the biopsy through my back, again, I attached no blame to them. But when it went through my back, they punctured my bowel, basically. So when they opened me up, I remember my, my parents were away. My sister was in Cornwall. No one really thought too much about this operation. <laughs> my brother-in-law, Giles, bless him, took me into the hospital. Someone who'd been through a quadruple heart bypass himself said to me, you'll be absolutely fine. We're here for you. We'll come and get you in a couple of days. The only issue you'll have is if you wake up in intensive care, then you'll know something's wrong. And we all both laughed. Off I went. Um, <laughs> and guess what happened? I woke up in intensive care because when they opened me up, everything was infected. I was in deep, deep trouble. If they hadn't operated on me, God knows how ill I would have been because they punctured my bowel and uh, it, was, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was real trouble for me. Um, they removed the tumor, but I was in intensive care and I woke up and thought, where the hell am I? In intensive care, my family kicked into crisis mode. Um, parents came back from holiday. I remember my big sister drove up from Cornwall. My poor younger sister, Vanessa, was first one in to see me in intensive care. And this was the closest I'll ever be to having a baby because I had the epidurals take away the pain from my stomach. Amazing. They, put me at an, they put me at an angle in bed like this where the epidural sank from my stomach into my legs effectively, which meant I, I was in excruciating pain in my stomach, which my sister arrived to see me in intensive care and all the alarms were going off and everything had to be cleared as, as everyone rushed in to attend to me. And you can imagine how traumatic that must have been for her. And... Um, I knew then that I wasn't going to go back to work so quickly. And it sort of got, in the short term, it got worse than there because they couldn't, because my bowel had been severely infected. I couldn't take any food or anything on board. If I had a, a sip of water, I'd sick it straight up. So then the challenge was to, because I was so frail, was to try and get me to take food on board. And they tried, I think, three or four different ways. And event, eventually, this sort of custody stuff, I remember it so well. They, they, they do intravenously, which, which, which was the final thing that worked. Um, and the epidural hadn't worked. And then I remember they gave me morphine one day. So I'm droning on this, must be so boring with something. Um, my older sister come up from Cornwall from her holiday in an emergency to see me. And she was sitting next to me and I had the bed next to the window in intensive care. And intensive care at Southampton Hospital is unbelievable. And I said, Luce, you're not going to believe this, but I know I'm on morphine and I know people hallucinate, but I have a gorilla on a running machine next to me. <laughs> I can see it clearly. I have a gorilla running next to me. And I was off morphine pretty quickly after that. And then the challenge was <laughs> to try and find pain relief for my stomach that would work. It was just the, the strangest period. Um, and I was in there. They hoped I'd be in there for 24 hours. I was in intensive care, I think, for at least 10 days. But I did get to watch the Champions League final on the Wednesday night or whenever it was. It's amazing, actually, when you think of sport being a motivation because you think of people like the late, great Sir Henry Cecil with Frankel and he always said that Frankel was his motivation to keep going. Just something to keep you going. And don't forget, I had a newborn son now at home. Um, so that was sort of added to the mix. And so I had the, the, the motivation to get home, to be able to spend time with him. But, of course, the heartbreaker was like I then couldn't lift him up because I was, you know, I'd, I'd had my stomach ripped out effectively. So for the first period of his life, I couldn't, I couldn't lift him up, which is, 
a sadness. And when I look back at those photographs, and it's difficult for them because daddy was frail and bald, um, which is, wasn't the happiest little episode. But has it changed? Well, it's, it's hard to say because you haven't gone through their childhood without that experience. But do you think it's had a positive impact on your family life in the longer term, in, in your relationship with your kids, the way you look at life? I think from my point of view, definitely. Definitely. I enjoy everything so much more. Being at half term, I was just on the beach, just walking. Just, I just have moments to myself. And um, it, was it, it was particularly the case in the years afterwards. I'd, I'd sit in the chair in Old Trafford, the Emirates, and I'd think about it more then. But I just have those flashbacks now. That's all. From their point of view, I think, I think it's very difficult for, for two kids. We, you know, lectures at school about cancer. And, and only a couple of weeks ago, we had heartbreak at my son's school, his PE teacher, um, passed away very young um, from cancer, which is very hard to take. And I think with their daddy having had it, I think probably, you know, it probably does worry them quite a bit. Um, so I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult. And in time, it'll be easier to, to sit down with them and just explain, you know, there's a million types of different cancers. There's a million types of different treatments. Some people are, are very, very unlucky. I was one of the lucky ones. I really was one of the lucky ones. And um, with, as a family, we're, we're, we're the better for it. Is there anything that you want to add or that we haven't asked, perhaps? Anyone in, in my world who works as freelance, self-employed, as a limited company, my lesson was, was get your insurance done and get it right. Be that health insurance, life insurance, critical illness insurance. It's so, so important. I think more importantly, and from a mental health point of view, you know, everyone says be strong. It's the most infuriating thing to say, yeah. but be sensitive to the person going through it. Be even more sensitive and look after the people around the patient, if you like. Um, husbands, wives, sisters, parents. It's, it's genuinely much harder for them. They're the one who, who need the support more than anything. The help, be it, we used to have food delivered I remember Georgie Thompson bless her who was my co-presenter at the time delivering cook frozen food each week and it makes such a difference little touches like that for my wife and things that they're the kind of things you do um they're the ones genuinely who find it harder and, and when you're the patient you just want to feel normal you just want to feel normal thanks again Ed for joining us but before you go you have to do our quick fair five with Lauren be ready? kind Lauren <laughs> Okay, fill in the blank. I am happiest when? I'm on holiday with my family. When I in am Cornwall. Fe- oh, in Cornwall. <laughs> of course. Uh, when I am feeling overwhelmed, I... I just have a moment to think back to that hospital ward 10 years ago, probably, and... As Gary Neville always taught me, Lauren, nothing's ever as bad as you think it is in television and it's never as good either. So you just try and stay level. And, and when I've done it, I remember if I could have one show back where I got badly wrong, it would be the Derby 12 months ago. And it, it felt like the end of the world. But the next day I said, you know, facing potential end of your life, that's the end of the world, not the way you presented a Derby. Very wise words. And third question, What's your one top tip for looking after your well-being? Family, friends, um, just appreciating 
I think it's easy for me because of what I went through, just appreciating appreciating who you've got and what you've got. Fourth question, can you give us a book, a person, a film, something that's inspired you recently? If you've seen it, <laughs> Mayor of Easttown, Kate oh, Winslet, she God. is off Unreal. the charts. She is inspiringly brilliant. What an actress she is. I'm 100% with you on that one. And our final question, can you give us a horse to follow? That's the hardest question of the entire podcast, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) I think I will go for high definition, who who will run well at the colour in the Irish Derby. But if ever I saw a St Ledger horse, it's him. I'm very happy to say that we are joined now by our very own Director of Welfare, Simone Sear. Simone, thank you for coming on to talk to us today. Um, It's going to be great to get your insight on what support Racing Welfare has got available. Um, So thank you. Oh, thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure. Simone, we wanted to talk to you because we had a little chat with you um, yesterday about what support Racing Welfare can provide. And you talked about it so eloquently and passionately that we thought that you'd be the person to talk to so can you tell us a little bit about how racing welfare can support those living with cancer and those who are supporting somebody else who's living with cancer yeah absolutely and yeah I think the first thing you know to say is that any health worries anxieties around cancer or an actual diagnosis that we recognise at Racing Welfare, that can be a really difficult and concerning time for people. And everybody will deal with it very individually in their own way. And some people will need support and others will be will navigate things, you know, on their own. But I think the message very much is that at Racing Welfare, we have here a trained team of welfare officers Um, And in addition to that, you know, 24-7 listening services that are available 365 days a year and that we can be available to offer a range of emotional and practical support to anyone who is concerned about cancer. You know, that might be the person themselves who's had a diagnosis, but it might be their partners, carers and close family members. So our team is on hand really to, to offer a range of support. And that range of support, some some examples of what that might include, um, I think first and foremost um, is is around being a professional friend um, and advocate really for people when they're dealing with with illness and diagnosis. And that might include helping people and supporting people to navigate, I think, what can be really confusing systems um, around healthcare, access to healthcare, and also around what, you know, what help and support is out there for me and our team can help people you know find that and can go through that journey with people um some other examples might include um help and advice around financial concerns i mean we know that living with illness or living with a diagnosis can be a really expensive time and our team are trained to help people access what they might be entitled to, which, which could be around benefits, but also helping to maximise people's income, you know, when, when actually, you know, evidence shows that you're going to need finances, you know, more than ever. 
Um, and at Racing Welfare, we're also able to provide financial grants ourselves. So uh, what we've done in the past is perhaps provide specialist pieces of um, equipment or items. And it might be anything from perhaps laptops, um, might be specialist mobility equipment or, or equipment to help keep people comfortable. Um, and it might be even respite breaks or holidays, for example, to help with that. And also, I think something else is our, um, our sort of referral into our other community services. So again, it can be a really lonely time for people. So it might be a referral through to our check-in and chat service. So somebody might want to receive some regular calls, you know, weekly or fortnightly from our trained volunteers. So to help stay connected, you know, to, to the white, you know, to racing's family, really and so it is just really a whole range and then I think if we we work very closely with some of the um, you know, specialist charities so such as Macmillan nurses for example we can work alongside the Macmillan team so there really is a whole range of, of help and support and, um, and my message as always would be to anybody that if, if you're wondering what we might be able to do how we might be able to help would be to just get in touch and we'll get one of our teams, you know, to give you a call back and we can talk it through. You were um, telling us yesterday, Simone, about some research that's been done about how important it is for whatever your cancer journey is to have that connection, that sort of friend alongside you to, to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, you know, there was some research done. I, I, I read some that was done in America you know, about the importance of, you know, of having that, that friendship really, you know, to help with that loneliness, that isolation, um, some of the difficult feelings and emotions that come up really. So, and that's, that's really exactly the sort of role that we can play at Racing Welfare. And um, important to reiterate, that's not just for the person that might have the diagnosis, that's for their family or whoever it is, the carers that are supporting them. Absolutely. Sometimes it can be worse for those people, can't it? The ones mm -hmm. who are actually supporting that person through cancer. It can be. It can, can be really, really difficult. Um, I know, and, and if it helps anybody out there, I, I had to support my, my husband last year. He had a, a cancer diagnosis with stomach cancer. So um, I, you know, I know myself how, how difficult and a worrying time that it can be. So I'm really pleased to say that we're joined now by Chrissy Sykes, who is Racing Secretary for Ruth Carr. Chrissy's husband was diagnosed with bowel cancer back in December 2020. And Chrissy's going to talk to us today a bit about how long it took for him to come forward to get that diagnosis and, and why it's so important for men in particular to feel that they can step forward for support so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today Chrissy. That's okay. Thanks for joining us Chrissy. So can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of your journey supporting your husband through cancer and how that diagnosis came about? Yes of course yes well for the first few months I was blissfully ignorant um, we had booked a holiday of a lifetime to go and see our daughter in Australia, and that was in November 2018. And um, that is when my husband first noticed some symptoms. 
He said at the time you put it down to the long flight, the changing climate, um, you know, the build up to this um, fabulous dream holiday. Um, but I, I did notice he was quite unsettled during that holiday, although I had no idea um, the reasons why. Um, he had experienced symptoms on and off for the next few months, and it was only when I was doing his laundry one day that one of the symptoms was that he was having accidents. And so that is how it was brought to my attention. And at first I didn't realize that was a symptom of bowel cancer. Um, had a few conversations with hubby and it brushed it off. Um, um, the symptoms continued. So I became more insistent that he visit the doctors. Um, he made excuses that, oh, it's gone away now. And, oh, then it was March 2020 and it's COVID, so I can't see a doctor. Um, whilst this was going on, so it took all of this, the summer during COVID of me questioning and asking and persuading and trying to get him to see a doctor. In the September of 2020, my best friend, um, came back to the UK from her Spanish home because she had the same symptoms. And after several scans, she was diagnosed with grade four bowel cancer. So with that in mind, I became even more insistent that it was absolutely imperative. My husband went and got himself checked out. Um, it took him another four months. It wasn't until November that he went to the doctor and only then, because he had a, a minor problem with his with an eye, an ingrowing eye uh, lash, uh, his eyelid was ingrowing. And I managed to persuade him that at that same appointment, please, can you discuss the other symptoms? He saw a really understanding doctor who uh, did an internal exam and thought everything was okay, but would arrange for an endoscope for him just to make doubly sure. So that's when he went to York Hospital on the 16th of December, because we were in lockdown again or approaching lockdown. Um, I could only drop him off at the hospital door and collect him. Um, the, during the endoscope, he asked the doctor, you know, had he found anything sinister? The doctor said he had. I arrived at six o'clock when all the doctors had gone home. So this poor young nurse had to explain that it was cancer, but they couldn't give us any idea of a treatment plan or the grade or any further information until we'd had the CT scan. And um, my husband went for a CT scan on Wednesday in January. And then two days later, he received a phone call from the hospital on the Friday afternoon when he was driving home from work. And the hospital said, oh, we need you to come in for a CT scan. And he said, well, I've just had one of those. You know, what do you need me for another one for? And well, when do you need me to come in? And the nurse said, now. So he went, arrived at the hospital, they did another CT scan. And that is when um, he saw a surgeon who drew a diagram to explain where the cancer was located on the right-hand side of his body. Um, he then um, gave a, a really good explanation of how the colon is made up of like four layers of flaky pastry. Um, and if the cancer is located in the first or second layer, then there's a good chance that it can be cut out and removed. I dropped my husband off on Tuesday the 19th of January for the operation. Um, the surgeon did the operation he called me at eight o'clock that night and um, he did say that 
it had been a challenge for him because in his words, my husband is a big lad. Um, but he'd been quite aggressive in what he'd taken out of the colon. He'd actually removed 25 inches. Two days later on the Friday, I collected him from the hospital. And when I had a look at his belly button, I mean, neither of us could believe that um, you would have had more of a scar if you'd had a piercing to put in there. There was literally nothing to see. There was no dressing or nothing. So then the following Saturday evening, he called us back again to say he'd got the all clear, that tested it all and there was nothing remaining and that um, my husband would just be put on a, a routine checkup list. The outcome was just miraculous, really, given that my husband had sat on the symptoms for two years. Um, it really is a miracle. And I know a lot of people, my, my best friend included, haven't been as lucky. Sadly, she passed away in March this year. But really, if I could say my message to anybody, you all know your own bodies. You know if something isn't right. And if it's not right, then get it checked out. You know, we've, we've got a great, great NHS service. It must have been really tough for you, Chrissy, to especially during COVID, not being able to be in hospital with your husband did you have a good support system around you yes I did yes um I have um support from my two adult children and family um I knew that racing welfare are there if I needed them um mm. I have subsequently spoken to our local representative and um because I've had a good outcome for me personally it's been easy for me to talk about and really just want to spread the message to everybody to get themselves checked. How do you think that we could encourage people who are feeling a little bit reticent to go to the doctor who may think that they have symptoms? That is a good question. Um, very good question because... In was, my it, was it because it the the symptoms were particularly what they were that was what was making your husband embarrassed yes. to come forward yes and um he's since after you know the the positive diagnosis and outcome he has since admitted that he was just embarrassed and you know my what I did say to him is that you know don't keep stum about a pain in the bum because <laughs> if, if you had a you know a pain in the arm or the leg or the neck or whatever yeah. you would get it checked out yeah, yeah it's definitely true and I think you just have to remember that doctors have seen everything haven't they so there's no need to be embarrassed there's no shame in it at all Thank you so much to all our guests today. It's been a really emotional episode for us. I think we were both really taken aback by how moved we were by Ed's story. And I know it really resonated personally with you and a lot of the experiences you had with your dad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything from him saying that losing his hair, that, that bit really resonated because you mm. don't really think about that. But it really does affect those who've lost their hair. And I remember... When my dad lost his hair, my mother-in-law very kindly got in touch with Cheveley Park, stood and asked them to send him a cap. And I think just, you know, those kind gestures. And he, he just wore that cap every single day, um, probably till the day he died, because, uh, you know, it's a big shock losing your hair and your eyebrows. And people look at you and they don't treat you like you're normal. And like Ed said, mm -hmm. you don't want people coming up to you in the street and pitying you or saying, poor you. And I just 
just everything he said. Oh, for me, I think as well, just thinking about his wife with a young child and being pregnant and, and going through that, just it highlights how important it is to support those that are not the cancer sufferer themselves, but are trying to cope with life that goes on in that situation. It's really tough. Yeah, it is, and I think people forget that, and mm-hmm. and it is horrendous seeing somebody sort of waste away during chemo, yeah. and I think it, it's just really important that those people or anyone supporting anyone through cancer realises there's a huge amount of support out there from race and welfare. Yeah, and how do they get in touch to find that support? They can call 0800 6300 and there's advice pages on the website at racingwelfare.co.uk. So, Tina, this is our last episode of this series. What's been your highlight, your takeaway? I think, gosh, it's been such a varied series, and I think, again, it's it's coming forward for support but I think what I've realised is everybody is suited to a different type of support Mm -hmm. and that's where race and welfare really comes in because we can help with any type of support so you know Tom Stanley found that talking to someone on the phone helped and Chris Hughes found that hypnotherapy was the most effective thing for him and but there's other things out there and yeah I think um I'm just so grateful to all of the guests that come on and are just Mm -hmm so open i think tom and ed really stand out this series it's um, perhaps we haven't heard them speak in that way before and i'm just so grateful that they're willing to share and because it really you know we get messages saying how much it helps to hear people having those conversations so yeah it makes you feel less alone and less isolated absolutely well i hope everyone's enjoyed the series as much as we have and we'll see you again later in the year see you then